0: So we need to build something which really changes an industry and that we can say, this is the company that we're most proud of and that actually can define our whole career. And that was you know, a big set of pressure to put on ourselves, but we felt like if we're going to do it, let's do it properly. And so we started from what the biggest industries were and what the biggest consumer problems we've had have been over the past 10, 15 years and kept coming back to the car industry for that reason.
1: Welcome to Secret Leaders from Kindling Media. I'm your host, Dan Murray-Serta, and we're here to help entrepreneurs succeed wherever you are in the life cycle. Today's guest is Tom Leiths, the co-founder of Motorway, which is a used car marketplace recently valued at over a billion pounds. I love talking to Tom because his journey says a lot about the strange startup ecosystem we operate in. He built successful business after successful business, and by that, I mean, they made money without raising outside capital. And then he sold them for more money. This shouldn't really be a surprise. That is historically what good business people did, right? But we live in an age where the most idolized startups are those that take venture funding and don't make a profit for years. With most of them obviously failing along the way. But having cut his teeth with his bootstrap businesses and having success with them... Of varying degrees, Tom now finds himself in the high-growth, venture-backed world with Motorway. And he's very clear about his learnings from every stage. So, what is Tom's origin story? Well, he isn't the kind of child clearly destined to become an entrepreneur.
0: I moved around a lot, actually, when I was a kid. My dad was a lawyer. And from when I was born till I was about five or six, I lived in Belgium. And then we moved to New York till I was about 11. So I was a fully American kid by that point. I was in the Little League, and I had a fully American accent. And then we moved back to England, and that was quite jarring, actually, because I, I had you know tons of friends and was not looking forward to moving back. Yeah, then I, then I went to school here, got loads of good friends, and became English very quickly. I think I was young enough that my accent could flip, and I got quite used to changing between American and English in that point. And then, yeah, I, I never really, during school... class myself as an entrepreneur. You know, you had some people who would like sell football cards or I was never that person. And I never had a very clear view of what I wanted to do with my career, but I knew I wanted to do something different. And I had that kind of sense that I definitely don't want a boring career. And that's probably the only driving force that took me through university and starting to think about what to do next. I think the first time I really thought about becoming an entrepreneur, let's say, is I was faced with a, with a difficult career choice when I, when I finished university. And I went to uni with Alex, my current co-founder by the way. Um, so I've known him a long time. After doing a bunch of temping in London and I was looking for that first kind of career move. And I ended up getting a job offer from an investment bank, went through this graduate recruitment two day thing and got offered a job at this investment bank which looked really exciting. I mean, it was a really high salary for a grad but it just didn't feel right all along. And while I was at university, I I studied geography and I got really quite obsessed about climate change and that whole movement. And I found this startup, which is called Future Forests, which was doing carbon offset and carbon management. And this was a long time ago. I'm sure my age here, but way before their time really but they were small venture back Yeah
1: you sound like an early adopter for sure on the important things fortunately
0: Yeah so I, and I contacted them and said look I'm you know a recent graduate I really like what you're doing can I come and talk to you and I went and met them and I remember walking into the office and I'd just had the offer from the investment bank and then I walked into this office which was somewhere in Holborn and there was 10 people in a room and it was just a hive of activity it was a mess stuff everywhere the CEO was kind of walking about like drawing loads of stuff on a whiteboard. There was a team of people hunched around a laptop, the radio was blaring. And as soon as I walked in, I was like, this is what I want. This is not the investment bank, it's this. And they offered me a job, but it was less than half the salary. And I did have to have a think about that, but it did not not for long. That was the first and only job I ever had, but I was there for a couple of years. It was quite formative, really. In and in a load of ways we were doing something that had never really been done before. And I was doing sales, so I was having to sell carbon offset to companies who didn't really know what that meant. And that taught me a lot about storytelling. Not that I was trying to you know, make stuff up, but that you really have to build a narrative to get something people to buy into what you're doing. And I also just learned a ton from the founders, particularly a lady called Sue Welland, who was my boss, I guess. And she really was really inspiring as an entrepreneur. And after a couple of years, I just felt like, I'd learned a ton there and it was time to go and do it myself. There was another spark there, which is that I met Harry, my co-founder. He was introduced as this kid who was brought into the office one day and they said, we need to build a much better website. This is Harry. He's my neighbor's son in Somerset and he's going to come and do it. Tom, you're in charge of the website. You guys go and do it. And so Harry and I were just kind of on this project. No one was really helping us and... He was a genius, even at that age. And we built the first carbon calculator, I think, that was kind of publicly usable. Uh, I'm not saying it was perfect, but that was a really fun project. And it was the first thing we did together. And when I then left there and thought, I really want to do something on my own, it was the fact that I'd kind of met Harry and my friend from university, Alex, who's my other co-founder, was, was working in internet marketing at the time. And the three of us met up and said, how do we make money on the internet and not have to work for other people? And that was really how it all started. How
1: do you make money on the internet and not have to work for other people? How did you get started?
0: Well, through a lot of experimentation, but Alex Buttle, my co-founder, he was working at an early search marketing company. So he knew quite a lot about paid search. And Harry was learning a lot about product and about coding and design and We actually downloaded this PDF. I remember it cost us $20 and it was called Google Secrets. And we were all doing our own jobs at the time. But this PDF basically taught you how to build websites that would rank really well in Google when it was a lot easier than it is now. And we began to just make loads of websites. I wouldn't say hundreds, but certainly 50 plus. And we did a deal to be able to put advertising on these websites. So we'd make them rank in Google. We would have adverts on there and begin to make money within a very short space of time, I mean, within a a few months of doing it outside of work, we were making enough money to leave our jobs. And so we did. And then we got an office out in Ealing in West London. It was like a just a massive experimentation phase. And I think that was one of the most exciting things for all of us because we were without having to get any investment from anyone. We had no network. We didn't know anyone. We just read blogs on like SEO and mostly in the States, because there was very little going on in London at the time. And then, you know, we started doing pretty well, very quickly. But after a while, we realized it was fun making all these different websites and understanding SEO, but we actually wanted to build valuable products that we were really proud of. So we focused down on a couple of areas. And that really helped us. And then we began to sort of make much more complex products, which were more about lead gen. We built a suite of personal finance websites, which started doing really, really well. And we then partnered with a guy called Shaquille Khan. He's a well-known angel investor. At the time, he wasn't. He was a bit like us, hustling. But he lent us his credit card. And I actually remember this story. Shaq likes telling this as well. I don't know how he found us, but he's always been good at finding people. And I met him in a pub in Soho, and he said, I hear you guys are doing some really exciting stuff. I'm going to China for a couple of years here's my credit card. It's got an unlimited balance. You can spend whatever you want on it as long as it's profitable and we'll just share whatever you make 50-50. And this was after about half an hour of a conversation that we had. And it was genuinely like he handed me this this black credit card. It didn't even have any writing on it. So I wasn't wasn't even sure if it was a real credit card. But anyway, um, I kind of came back and talked to Harry and Alex. I was like, you know, we were talking about if we could put more money into this, we can make more money. Well, why don't we, let's look into this. So, we built something out with Shack, and then we sold it to AOL within about six months. And you know this had all happened in probably a year from leaving my job. We'd been through so much experimentation and then we'd kind of built out this product and then exited, which was a small exit, but for us at the time, it was very, very meaningful. We were kids, basically. What was amazing about that, and I'm sure we massively undersold it and you know all of those things, but it was amazing because it suddenly meant we could go, right, well, look, we've learned a lot very quickly. We've now got some seed capital. Let's work out what we're going to build next. And this kicked off, I guess, a a very fertile period for us of really understanding product and working out how you build MVPs, test and learn. And yeah, we had a very successful few years after that. We built an office space website, which was like a, lead gen site for office space, kind of like a right move for serviced offices. And we built that and sold that about a year later. And that gave us the capital for the next thing, which was a broadband website. And with each kind of iteration of what we were building, we were beginning to hire developers, learn how to build more complex products. And we were getting better and better at understanding how you make a difficult consumer job easier through really well-designed products and really focusing on adding value. We saw broadband as a really difficult thing. We were personally finding that difficult. Like, how do you how do you find a good broadband deal? All the websites were terrible.
1: Still is. So I don't think you've solved it. Still is.
0: No, but we <laughs> uh, that was a, an area we felt like we could really make a difference in, and we um, we invested pretty much everything we made from the previous exit in building out this platform, and that that grew to be pretty big. Certainly for us, we built a team of about thirty five people. It was the UK's biggest broadband website by a long way. And we also got into building much more complex products. So we built um, a speed testing app, which was, um, I think it was back in like iOS 3 or iOS 4, which did really well. We had a couple of million downloads of that. And we built like this really cool tool which would take speed test results and plot them on a map so that you could look at your street and see which broadband providers were providing the fastest speed on your street. That was really exciting. And we had no investment. So in all of these companies, in fact, we never met a VC. The only thing we knew how to do was to spend a certain amount of money and make more money out of out of the back end of that. and reinvest the surplus, and that's basically what we did. So it was a very good. So sorry, just to be clear, you're talking about
1: business. Business. What used to be what used to be known as business. <laughs> yeah. Right. So as in, like, literally the kind of things that most of our parents are like, yeah, no shit. What is all this fucking stupid? venture capital money and your loss-making, et cetera. Because it's funny, I hear you talk about this stuff and before I went on my own journey of raising money, et cetera, with Joel, actually, um, who you know, similar thing to you. I've had same co-founder for 10 years. You know, We built two businesses, which were money in and, and, and money out. And uh, it was all very novel to us, this idea of uh, the loss-making, um, <laughs> take money from strangers kind of concept. But yeah, amazing. You're referring to actually being a highly competent and intelligent businessman, which, you know, we don't, we don't hear a lot of those stories.
0: No, and, and we, I don't think we really overthought it at the time because we didn't realise there was any other way of doing it. We would read TechCrunch and hear about all the startups over in the States, but we didn't really have any sense that any of that was happening in London and that you could go out and get seed funding or any of those things. So we had no ambition either to have investors. We really loved the fact that we made all the decisions of what we wanted to do we made the mistakes. We could fix them. We never had to report to anyone. And that level of freedom, along with that responsibility that comes with that, especially when you have a team, was, I think, what got us to be quite good at instinctively knowing what what you focus on.
1: I'm mm. going mean, to just um, interject quickly, because you mentioned Shaq and not really knowing about this world and everything else. And it's interesting because I've only met him twice. And once was at lunch where, um, I, you know, this is the biggest humble brag ever, but it was like a private... Lunch in Shoreditch with Kevin Sistrom, founder of Instagram, because I was running Grable and because we were like big and you know, he wanted to meet the top founders. And so it was like 10 people at lunch in Shoreditch, and Shaq was there. And I was like, Who the? Who is this guy? Yeah, and like Kevin was like, "Oh, Mark sends his love and he misses you and all this kind of stuff." And I'm like, "Mark, I mean, wow, all right, <laughs> who is this guy? Serious?" So Shaq, for those that don't know, is is really basically Daniel Ek's co-founder at Spotify. Not really Mark does that, but he's basically his business partner. He funded Spotify in the early days, and you know there is basically no one I think that Daniel Ek respects and appreciates more than Shaq. and you know he's been at the heart of a lot of the. London, especially but European startup scene in quite a considerable
0: way, right? I mean, quite an eye the guy has for talent. Definitely. I mean, that's his, uh, I think he's got a better eye for that than than almost anyone I've, I've met. You know, we had that early journey together with Shaq, and we stayed very close friends after that. But he, you know, he went off on his own journey after that. You know, he went on the Spotify journey, and you know, all the things that he's done since. But we kind of went in our own direction, almost opposite direction, which is like, not about the kind of big stuff that people hear about, but more just closing the doors, building a team, learning how to build products. And that's really what excited us. We didn't really have a huge amount of ambition to be famous entrepreneurs. We were just really passionate about building products and making them work and that whole process. But we did come back together, I guess, a little bit. We exited the um, broadband company to Uswitch, which was um, our first proper big exit. But that's when you know, we started to talk to Shaq more and understand all the stuff he'd been doing he'd been in the states for quite a while and he's also now an investor in in motorway so he's uh, he's been a big part of our career i guess in, in that in that sense
1: so talk to me then you saw you saw the business to you switch like how long did you have to go and work at you switch did you all work there how was that experience for you because you know they were a startup too once upon a time not i guess i'm not really mapping i'm being lazy haven't done my research to map out the timelines, but I can't imagine they were a startup around for that much longer than you before you.
0: Actually, they'd been around for quite a Switch had been around for a long time. I think probably we sold to them in about 2012, I think. And they'd been around for quite a while. They'd spent a lot of money on TV. First learning that we had was we had this broadband website, which was doing really well. We were, you know, it was profitable. It was growing, but it had begun to sort of flatline. We were building that broadly through performance marketing, through search marketing and all those types of things. Whereas U-Switch was a brand. They'd spent loads of money on TV. And when you plugged in what we'd built into their platform, it instantly doubled its conversion rate with no other changes, just changing the brand from what we had to Uswitch. switch And that was a real light bulb moment because we sort of realized that actually, if you build a brand, it's hugely powerful. And we'd never done that before. So there was some really good learnings there. And it was a pretty big company. There was about a couple of hundred people we stayed there for about six months. If there was a regret, we, we remember during that deal, we were offered to split it between equity and cash, and we went all cash, which was a massive mistake because they went on to exit for, I think, a couple hundred million soon after. So some learnings there. But no, we were keen to just do our next thing. You know, We'd been doing the broadband thing for a few years. We'd already had some ideas of what we wanted to do next, and we decided to go and do that. So we stayed on as advisors. We really looked after the team. And once they were happy and it was all rolling, we moved on and started the next thing.
1: If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2, you're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Was the next thing top 10? Yes. Yeah.
0: How long did you give yourself in between the two? Nothing. Zero, and that was a regret. Actually, that I have is just we never stopped. We never stopped from when we first downloaded that PDF about how to rank in Google all the way until that point. Uh, how
1: many years is this by this point, by the way? So from starting your tinkering,
0: seven or eight years, something like that.
1: And you, you've, you're married now with a kid, so with a daughter. Yes. So where did you meet your wife along this journey?
0: Probably around then, actually, before the YouSwitch deal. So she met me when we were still. We didn't know where we were really at that point. And I don't think we had this huge, clear vision of what we wanted to do along the way. We were still really just loving building, but we were getting very excited about what's the next new thing. We've done this. What's next? It was a thousand miles an hour all the time. And I think after that, you know, you asked, did we take a break? I wish we had taken a break because it all happened a bit too quickly. We, this was our first exit. And this is when we did meet venture capital people for the first time. I mean, top 10 went through a number of pivots. The first thing we did was this idea about making lists. We had this domain name, top10.com. The first idea for it was around social list making. So you build your top 10, I don't know, places to eat in San Francisco. Other people would build their top 10s and we'd aggregate it. And we built a really cool MVP that allowed you to, to do this in a really easy way. And we went and pitched it at a conference in San Francisco called the Launch Conference which was really exciting. First time we'd ever been to San Francisco and we'd read all the TechCrunch stuff. And we did have a little bit of like hero worship of Mark Zuckerberg and all these entrepreneurs out there. And we were just used to our little office in Ealing. But we went out there and pitched it and it was amazing. It was really fun. And we through that got a lot of venture capital interest. And then we came back to London and very quickly got offered a seed deal for, I think it was about three or four million dollars so it was pre-launch, broadly pre-idea, but a lot of it was based on the fact that we were, I guess, a founding team with a track record and an interesting idea and that we were, and that was, that was looking back, I think the wrong move to do that because what that meant was we then had this venture capital funding without making revenue and we didn't have a business model at that point. And so we pivoted through a number of different ideas over a period of about a year until we landed on top 10 focusing on travel and specifically hotels. We built out, as you know, because I know you guys were doing Gravel at the same time, but we saw this big opportunity in owning mobile for travel and particularly in hotels because at the time, the big hotel platforms were not really focusing on mobile. The user experiences were poor and no one had really got how to make mobile work. And we focused really specifically on that problem and building out Hotel Search but built for mobile generation and did really well. You know, that first version of the app that we got out there, it got an app of the year award. It got pushed out really supportively by Apple. And then we had a lot of users and we started growing at a very fast pace. And then we did a series B. So we'd been through this kind of experimentation phase. We would pivoted a couple of times. We did hit the right product and then it began to scale. Then we raised this series B. And around this time, it started getting harder because we sort of topped out on this early adopter user base. And we were beginning to fight with Booking.com and TripAdvisor and all these huge brands on the web. And meanwhile, they were getting into mobile and had much bigger teams and more budgets than we did. And we were finding it just incredibly hard to compete with them. This sort of led to a pretty difficult period, I would say, where probably our hardest period we'd had since then. We'd never had this situation before where we had a brilliant product, good budgets, an amazing team. But almost all the things we were trying just weren't working because we weren't competing we just weren't able to compete with these huge brands. and it was a tough period actually because it was the first time I had a lot of lying awake at night going, I'm just not quite sure what moves we make to win this because I was just beginning to realize that our product probably wasn't differentiated enough. We may have have had great UX and a really powerful set of technology tools, but you need more than that to compete against booking.com you need to be Airbnb you need a model that's 10 times better or 10 times different. And we didn't have that. And that was quite tough to swallow, actually, particularly after we'd had these successes in the run up to that. It was an interesting phase because we we, eventually what, what happened was we tried to find a buyer for the company, we got pretty close to an acquisition with two big, big internet companies, both of them pulled out at the last minute. Are you able to say who either of them are? I can't, I don't think, actually. But they were big, you know, the kinds of companies that are... that They rhyme with mucking.com and... No, Mug it wasn't. TV they weren't travel kind of... actually. I can say that. They weren't okay. travel, But they both fell through anyway.
1: And why did they fall through? Like, was it, like, you know, have you done a post-mortem on this? Is it, like, obvious stuff? Like, oh, well, you know, it just happens? Or was someone in the team, like, strategically not aligned? Like, on their side, I mean, like, was it, were they, like, just fuckers and that's just how it works was it your fault like was it a mix you must have
0: like thought about this stuff I have but I mean we've, we've had a few of these uh, you know a few exits if you like along the way I think it's a little bit similar to fundraising you can try and unpick it but in the end for a deal to happen all the stars have to align all of them and if one star whether it's strategic people timing market they all have to happen for a deal to go through and that's why it's really impossible to sort of plan your business in the, in the context of trying to reach an exit at a certain point or something. It just doesn't work like that. And in this case, I think they were exploring the travel space. They were interested in it, but probably just not that interested in it to take a big risk and do a deal like this. So it just didn't work out. And I think we knew that anyway. The business wasn't working. It would have been a Hail Mary if that had happened. What I would say is, you know, that period you hear horror stories about VC investors and what happens when things go wrong. We didn't have that experience at all. And we had, we had some excellent investors. We had um, Axel and Balderton and they came through that journey with us. You know, we were in the board meetings going, look, here's, here's how we see the market. We were considering doing another big round of funding, just, you know, throw money at the problem, but that didn't feel right to us or to them. So we tried to get an exit and they worked really hard to help us through that process. And when it didn't happen, we didn't have quite enough money to fully look after the team. And that really was challenging because we felt like, okay, if we're going to lose money for investors, that's one thing. We have a team of 30 people that rely on us and we have to find out how we do the right thing in this situation. So in the end, we as founders and the investors as well, we put some money back into the company. The investors matched that, even though we knew we're never going to get that back in order to give every single person in the team 3 months' salary. And we worked this out over, uh, once these deals fell through, we had like a day where we're like, right, we're going we're gonna to close this down, but we're going to do it right, and we're going to look after the team. So we had a day of working the finances out of that. And then I wrote a script, and I was up all night writing the script, and we went into the office, and I gathered everyone together, and I just read through this script. Normally, I'm quite good in team meetings. I can just sort of talk off the cuff, but I couldn't do this one. Um, And I just read it out and no one was expecting it because if you're trying to get to an exit, you can't have the team leaving. And we were genuinely trying to get a great result for everyone. So we didn't really tell them the situation that we were in. And we had to reveal all of it at that point and tell them that we're closing down. You're all losing your jobs. And that was a very tough meeting. But I think they appreciated that we'd worked hard to make sure we could deliver that message, but also say, you know what, we've got everyone three months salary and we're also not going to stop working until we've got every single one of you a job where you want to work. And so that's what we did. So then we had probably about a month after that, where we were basically focusing on landing the team wherever we could. And then it came down to the point where me, Harry and Alex were left in this office with all this equipment. And then we were like, right, let's sell all the equipment, sell the office chairs, all of that stuff. And I think you guys bought some and of a, it. And
1: stage you? left me <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> so where, funnily enough
0: where uh,
1: I, I know Tom from a previous life is uh, growing Grabble and needing all of this equipment and suddenly like getting an email from whatever network being like there are these guys top 10 they're selling all of their stuff do you want it and like you know, us I think you are in Soho right?
0: We were we were in Soho yeah yeah yeah
1: us being like oh my god yes that's absolutely amazing all these Apple laptops the chairs all of the things that we need for our growing team that's perfect obviously circular reality um, we ended up you know, a few years later, going through the same mobile journey, right, and ending up shutting down. And actually, by the way, we're saying like exactly the same, able to pay off slightly different because we were a, we didn't need any more money from our VCs. Um, we were able to pay off everyone for three months, Did exactly the same thing, though, by the way, the month of finding everyone the job that they wanted if they wanted it and then sort of just being stuck with Joel afterwards and being like, right, well, it's just us two in this office in Shoreditch now. let's go to the pub. Which prick can we find to buy all of our shit? Yeah. (laughs) We were those guys to top ten. There has to be someone else out there that will buy all of our stuff now. But yeah, I mean, I completely understand the... I think, speaking only from personal experience on this, there's a sort of level of um, pride, I suppose, if I'm honest, Obviously, there's the niceness of wanting to be a good human being and do the right thing by your team. But there's also the pride, right? Which is like, I'm going to remember how I treated this situation in five years, even if no one else does. And I want to be able to look back and say that I actually looked after everyone the fairest way I could. Definitely. And I've reflected on that as pride.
0: Yeah, I I agree. Once you know it's going to go a certain way, it's up to you how you do that. And some people, I think, do just walk out and let it happen. And obviously, some people have to. Yeah.
1: Is is another reality. This isn't about making other people feel guilty because actually some people have to.
0: Yeah, exactly. There's different reasons, right? But it definitely felt right for us to do that. And and in the end, my other big reflection on it is that however difficult that was, and it was really difficult, it was so much better when it was done. And it wasn't that bad in the end. You know, look at it, like you're looking back now, you're like, okay, probably endless amounts of sleepless nights around that period of time but in the end, it was kind of fine. We're still really good friends with loads of the people in that team, still even friends with the investors that we lost millions of pounds for. You can go through these things and actually it's fine. There's loads of learnings. And I remember that often when there's other challenging things, even in, our, you know, in on Motorway's journey, when you go through difficult periods or difficult things or things not going to plan, that they generally are all right in the end. After
1: success, after success, after success, did you feel like prepared for failure and I know it's a bit of a weird question because who the hell's prepared for failure but I suppose not that many people have um as many validation points because this is the thing a lot of your journey is like we did this for six months we did that for a year we did that for a year it's like unbelievable dopamine hits throughout the journey as validation that you guys are like really fucking sharp really on it you really understand what the market needs and you know how to execute and you know how to sell time after
0: time which is rare so what was that like yeah, I don't think we ever got into that mode where we thought we were geniuses. Where if you go through even one or two periods of success, you realize that there's a lot of luck involved and also there's a lot of the fact that it's about working with the right people and you know me, Harry and Alex are very fortunate in that we're yeah, a team that complements each other well, we trust each other and that in itself is is a lucky position to be in. So I don't think we were we were really feeling like we're geniuses, everything we touch is going to turn to gold. And also a lot of stuff that we did along the way didn't work. We'd had ideas that we'd started that failed as well. So it wasn't a huge surprise. I think it was just much more the the time and level of investment and focus that you put into it, into a full startup that then fails after four years. It feels tough, partly because you've just invested so much of your time in it. That's quite hard to to, to swallow. And I think the other related point, I guess, is When it's venture capital-backed, you fail more slowly, I think, than you probably should. And when we were trialing stuff on our own as MVPs with our own money, uh, you'd get early validation or the opposite. And if it was the opposite, you would probably stop and move on to the next thing. But once you've pitched multiple investors, got a business plan, got money in the bank, have board meetings, it's much, much harder to turn around. That's why I think it's worth really getting... It's dangerous to raise money too fast and it's worth really spending the time to validate your assumptions before you do because it's hard to get off that train. We took a year out pretty much after that and that was the first time we'd ever had a break, any of us, and we all did different things. Well, what did you do? I bought a house. Uh, my wife got pregnant. From you, right? Fr- from what? Well, you like, you know, I bought a house. She got pregnant. Oh, right, yeah, yeah.
1: Like, like to think you were both involved in we both, were both of those moments. We were both,
0: in, we were both involved in that. <laughs>
1: Let let it be known to our
0: listeners, Tom had a very puzzled look on his face. <laughs> exactly. No, I, just, I loved not working. We were just not working. We were doing up the house. It was a great, actually a really fun time. You know, Harry went to Vietnam for a while. We all did different stuff. We didn't actually talk to each other for about six months. And then we all considered getting jobs. And I remember doing some interviews. And I think they had as well. And we all met up in the pub and thought, we're not going to do that, are we? We're definitely not going to get jobs. So It's about time we sat down and worked out what we are going to do next. And at that point, we'd had enough time to unwind to digest it all. And there were definitely some very clear learnings. So we then decided to. The first thing was we said, we're not going to raise any money, even if we could. Maybe we can't, right? We've had a failure. Who knows? But in any case, we don't want to do that. Let's get an office and let's really forensically work out what we want to do next on our own terms. And we won't raise any money until we have a business that's working. That was the kind of agreement we made in the pub. And that's exactly what we did. So we we got an office in Camden uh, and we spent, it was about, it wasn't six months, probably took us four to get to Motorway. Which is a tiny, tiny amount of time, actually. Yeah, but I think we'd we'd had a lot of thinking time uh, beforehand. So we didn't come in completely cold. And we, the one thing we started was we're not, this isn't going to be something which is a two year journey. This is going to be the big one we're going to focus the next 10, maybe 20 years of our lives on this. We know we don't want to do anything else. So we need to build something which really changes an industry and that we can say, this is the company that we're most proud of and that actually can define our whole career. And that was, you know, a big set of pressure to put on ourselves, but we felt like if we're going to do it, let's do it properly. And so we started from what the biggest industries were and what the biggest consumer problems we'd had have been over the past 10, 15 years And kept coming back to the car industry for that reason, because it's a hugely offline industry, certainly was at that time, 2017, really offline, terrible consumer experience generally, no transparency, and has largely been undisrupted by the internet. And you look at that going, why is that the case? And what could we do to change that? Because if we could change that, then we will have built an era-defining company. And that's, that's why it was such an attractive space for us. The challenge in it was trying to work out which part of it we're going to fix because there were lots of things you could go at. But we kept coming back to this concept of selling a car. We'd all had a really terrible experience every time we tried to do that. And we tried to work out why that was the case and then how we could fix it. And that really was the first four to six months of of us being in an office. And then we went back to the old way we used to work, which was Harry built a website, Alex marketed it, I went and cold called lots of people to try and get some early commercial arrangements. And then we launched an MVP without hiring anyone and began to drive traffic to it, generating data, understanding what the conversion rates might look like. And that was where it started. And until we had that live working and we were beginning to grow, we didn't really consider raising money. But at that point, we knew we had something really exciting. And that's when we, we said, right, now's the time to go for it. What did you test on your MVP? What were you looking for? We looked at online pharmacy quite a bit, but we couldn't get excited about that. We'd seen there was like PillPack, which was doing great in the States. But I don't think that's a good way of, you know, one way you can do this. And I've, I know some other entrepreneur, really good entrepreneurial teams that take this really forensic approach to going, what should we build next? And you can look at like things that are big in the States. You can look at other markets, what's doing well there that could be translated here. And we did a bit of that. And there were some interesting ideas that came out of the back of it. But it, did, it just felt like we were cloning something else if we went down that route. And we just couldn't get excited about it, however exciting the, the opportunity might have been. You know when it's something you really care about, because you can only build great products if you care about it. I really believe that. You know, It's not on a sheet of paper. A lot of it's just a lot more emotional than that.
1: So what was the vision for Motorway at the start? And was it the same as it is now? Like how consistent has that journey been? And like, obviously with products, the MVP is not often the same as the reality of what comes out in the wash. So what was the story for you guys?
0: It actually has been quite consistent. We narrowed down on this consumer problem of selling a car and saying, if we could if we could find a way to make that happen online, get people more money and make it a great experience, then we will win and build an enormous, enormously successful company. But actually getting there took a lot of trial and error, obviously. And I think the biggest early learning was that in order to solve this, it's a two-sided marketplace. And so we realized quite early on that the product that we have now, which is you're someone selling a car, you profile your car, and then we have car dealers around the country which bid for that car and the highest bidder wins the car. And by doing this all online, we're removing the traditional middlemen, delivering more value to both sides, and it really works. But We had to understand the car dealer problem in order to make that happen. This was the first time we'd ever contemplated building a a true two-sided marketplace. And the challenges of growing one of those is really tough. Because with any marketplace, it only works if you've got liquidity on both sides. If you have, in our case, enough dealers to buy the cars, you need that in order to get a good result for for sellers. So the challenge was finding an MVP that would validate this and and let us begin to grow. We did that by partnering with some very big car buying firms, which didn't offer amazing deals, frankly, but they allowed us to present offers to any car seller and not have to do that whole building up of the car dealer side. And we could generate revenue by delivering leads to those buyers. And that was a successful first MVP. The product worked really well. We were acquiring customers. We were growing fast. What we did then was say, right, what we're going to do is take a segment of the highest value cars that come through the platform. And it was all cars that were over about 30 grand And then we started contacting car dealerships that focused on that high end of cars. And then it was a very manual job of us talking to sellers, customers, getting photos of their car, profiling their cars, and then talking to car dealers about them and getting them to tell us how much they'd be willing to pay for them. So it was actually a very, very manual relationship-based phase. There was no shortcut in it. It was grassroots stuff. But through that, we learned how to profile cars. We learned what car dealers really need in order to make a bid online and stand behind it, how we help them collect cars and do all these things they're not used to. And that was around the time we raised our seed round and began to build out a sales team to handle that, grew out the product team and began turning all of this into a technology platform. And from there on, it really, we had the fortunate issue of just too much interest on both sides of the marketplace and just trying to build fast enough to deliver against it, which had its own challenges. but. Was, was the kind of problems you want to have. And I mean, when you say like kind of problems you
1: want to have, was it a completely new challenge for you? Like the kind of scale at which you had to start um, hiring and therefore stepping up as a leader, right? Because I don't know how many employees you've got now, but like around 30 at top 10, right? So like very new kind of challenge. Like
0: how do you get the right teams in place, the right people? It was very different. Yeah, I mean, we're now 350 people. So we've, we've grown very rapidly in a short space of time. The first phase was was all right, actually. It wasn't too different to what we'd done before. It was we built up to a team of about 30 people, I think, before we did our Series A. And a lot of that is just defined by who you hire. The culture was – was we were defining the culture very early on. Actually, I think that's something we did really well. Once we had that, it made it easier to hire, and we recognized that even though we, we hadn't built huge companies before, we had seen how quickly cultures can break with the wrong people And also that the clearer you are around what you're looking for in in a team, the faster you can grow and the less mistakes you make. So we knew that early on, we were quite passionate about getting that right. And that really helped. We grew to about 50 or 60 people and then COVID hit. The rapid growth phase has pretty much all been through the pandemic. So that posed its own problems where the majority of the scale that we did through 2020 was done fully remote. And this I think we were in a good position then because we had done quite a lot of work on our values. We'd made them very practical. We helped everyone hiring use a sort of fixed set of questions to be able to work out whether someone does or doesn't sort of fit. And so that really, really helped us. But it it definitely changed my role as a leader, I suppose. And all of us have had to move rapidly out of that doing phase into a leading phase. And that's not something we'd had to do before. It's been an interesting challenge for all of us to do that. But I think we were ready for that. And actually, because of the scale of the ambition we've got for the company, it's obvious that you have to do that. You can't be in the weeds with everyone all the time. You have to be working out what's next, providing clarity to the team and over-communicating to help them do it. I'm probably making it sound smoother than it was to get to that phase. But I think we did have the right uh, platform in place at the beginning.
1: Got it. And so, you know, just talking about the the culture, do do you feel like you mostly knew all this stuff because you'd seen the bad sides of when culture doesn't really work and can break. Like the experience of growing companies previously creates a, a sort of predictability level when you're, when you're mapping out your next team. And I guess I'm asking this again selfishly. Like first thing we did at Heights was culture. Why? Because when we were shutting down Grable and when all of that stuff was going to the wall, we realized that actually our culture was 75% just words,
0: not really lived values at all. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a a thing around making it really tangible and real and not just words because it is, everyone reads about it, right? It's not like a new thing that you want to have a great culture and you need to have strong values, but actually living that is a very different thing. And we had been through similar where we'd had strong culture and not such strong culture and realised the difference when you get it right. The biggest learning that we had from our previous companies was around attacking hard conversations very early on, and we did that very well in Motorway at the beginning. We hired, obviously, we made hiring mistakes, but we have learned to deal with those really quickly when they happen, particularly in really critical parts of the business, like product, for example, or someone leading a sales team. If that isn't right, it's not going to work. It just isn't going to work. And so we haven't sort of labored over those issues. We've dealt with them quickly and we've built that into our culture that the team handles that. And that's one of the things I would say that has helped us grow fast and keep it strong and the challenge now is to keep that culture as we go beyond where we are now it becomes a little bit more challenging to obviously to meet every single person that you hire and to make sure that they're right so really about enabling the team to have the right framework.
1: So what have been your hardest challenges at Motorway? Because like, you know, you've achieved unicorn status after not very long. So firstly, congratulations on the basis of, I know I'm sure you'll say, well, that's hardly like a milestone really. And in reality, you know, like we're far too deep and interesting human beings to care about something like that. However, you did want to go big. You have had lots of varied, um, you know, step changes of, of success in your career and, this is the definition of big right this is like this is the big boys club like once you're a unicorn you're in a very 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 small subset of companies especially in the UK but let alone in the world it is a milestone of course it's a valuation based milestone so I'm sure it comes with its own caveats so I guess I'd like to understand how you and the and your co-founders reflected on that like is it palpably exciting for you or is it sort of hard to psychologically connect with it
0: Yeah, it's a bit of both. I think it has been meaningful actually, because it's we knew we were building something really special. And last year was just such a rapid growth phase. And it was tough. We had some really tough times where, for example, we've got demand outstripping our ability to handle it, customer experience got hit a number of times, which was very difficult. We had to work out ways to fix that. And you know, you have all these scaling challenges along the way, and it's a thousand miles an hour. So reaching that point where we had a little bit more, I guess, outside recognition for going, actually, look, this company is doing really well. It's very big. It's a unicorn, if you want to call it that. That was definitely a period where we went, actually, let's just pause and go, this is a big moment for us. We had a big, our first big team event, which was just in November. We had the entire team down in Brighton for this really fun party. And we've not really been able to celebrate along the last couple of years. So that was a really big moment. And we tried to really make it Clear to the team that they have built something that's really meaningful now, and that we should celebrate it. But at the same time, I'm sure anyone who's just become a unicorn, when from the outside it looks like you've made it, from the inside you know that you're still at the beginning. And that's, to be honest, you wouldn't be a unicorn unless you had a long way to go because no one's going to invest in something that's hit its end, right? And we're very much at the beginning. We're we're in an industry that's like a hundred billion pound a year industry, and we're doing about one or two percent of that right now. So. It feels like we've done a lot in 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 you know in this journey, but actually there's a hell of a lot more to go. So we better make sure we're personally prepared for that and that the team are prepared for that, that we haven't made it, it's not like it's suddenly done. It's the opposite of that, it's very much at the start. What are your big challenges then? I think you go through phases of what the biggest challenges are. We've been very much in whack-a-mole mode of scaling one of our biggest challenges is just scaling the technology and the people side of it together. We have a very, we have a strong belief that in the car space, you need amazing customer services along with amazing technology. And the linking of those two together is challenging because you, you could be 2000 people if you don't find the right systems and processes. So working out how we scale in a really linear way and not compromising that customer experience is probably our biggest challenge. But also for me as a leader and for you know, our whole exec team, it's about us stepping up and bringing on more experience into the team. We recently hired a COO, James Wilson, who joined us from Amazon. He, was a, he ran the marketplace at Amazon across Europe. And he's brought a huge amount of great marketplace experience and how you, how you design for scale, not just kind of solving problems, but you go, where do we want to be in three years time? Let's work back from there. So we're having to be a lot more strategic now and plan. We obviously have much bigger budgets now and we need to make sure we deploy them right. So it's a a whole new set of challenges, but they're really exciting because they are about, we now have the license and the ability to make really bold moves and to build the experiences that we could have only dreamt of a few years ago. So we just want to make sure we focus on the right things and deliver those.
1: And what about you personally as a founder? Like what have you found the hardest challenges to sort of step up and... Because this is, this is the thing people don't talk about so much, like if you think about it often with, uh, with teams, you do often hear, which is sadly a reality, that you get to each new stage and sadly like the team that got you to from C to Series A are not the same team that can take you from S- Series A to Series B and we're experiencing that at heights at the moment, refreshing the team and it's painful. But it has to be done. But at the same time, like you, you, the founder, have no choice. You're tied to the business, so you have to fucking grow. Like if you don't, the business doesn't work. So, how have you found yourself like growing through these changes? And like based on feedback of what other people say about you as well, where do you still need to do better?
0: Firstly, you're definitely right. The team and the requirements of the business completely change at every different stage, and I worry about the team a lot. You know, everyone's been through so much pressure over the past few years and they they are we're asking everyone in the team to do ten years worth of career growth in two years and expecting everyone to sail through that without any problems. It doesn't happen. And some people won't make it and that's totally fine and probably quite healthy to not make that. Whereas other people really embrace it and want to do it. But it doesn't come without its impact, right? And and I, I do I'm beginning to sort of focus a lot more on just like checking in on all of them. Particularly those that have been there from the start, they're scaling all the way up. They haven't done this before and nor have I. And we, you know, I, I try and spend time with them to make sure they're making it. And me personally, the challenge is, is what it's always been for me, which is most of my career has been spent with a small group of people in a room and I love getting into the detail and I really care about the details. And, you know, I will often still talk to product teams and kind of give my two pence worth and be quite annoying and I need to stop doing that. Right. Because it's much more about the giving the clarity of the outcomes you need from the teams and then giving them the agency to do that. And so it's very much a shift in from doing to leading. And that's obvious, but it's quite hard to do when you've spent all of your life as a kind of someone who loves building things. And so I'm trying to take that approach to the management of the business, which I'm sure I still have a long way to go in.
1: And what would you say like so far is your most um, valuable piece of feedback that you've you've received from a team member or from your co-founders along the journey that's actually made
0: you stop and think? What's been actually really, we, we haven't talked much about the sort of investors and the, the value that they bring. But I think as we've gone along this journey, I've had a lot of really good mentoring actually from the, the kind of investors. Hugo Burge, who was our kind of led our seed round and our A round. And more recently, Danny Reimer, who's in um, Index, he, he led the last two rounds, have given me, I think, a lot of context around just thinking really, really boldly and forcing yourself out of this, like where you are now and the kind of incremental changes you need to make to improve the business, that you can only really improve so much if you take that approach. You sometimes have to just come right out of there and go, what do I want this to look like in four years' time? And then you're going to have to make some probably quite bold and painful things in order to get there. It's not going to happen from just, what if we improve the conversion rate at this point in the funnel, which is where I've always naturally focused. So the feedback that I've had from them around just raising the sites to the horizon a lot more has actually been really helpful in the last year or two as we've had to go from whatever we were, 70 people to 300 people. And I think that's actually changed the way that I think about things. And I need to get more comfortable with just staying there
1: and obviously, like you know, the idea of, of taking money from Index and raising, a, you know, over a billion dollar valuation and billion you know, pound valuation, all of this stuff, forcing yourself into that mindset, thinking bigger, being bigger, etc. Of course, there is like an exceptionally large graveyard of companies that have been encouraged by companies, VCs like Index, to think bigger and be bigger, and for whatever reason, they haven't been able to take that step change. And it's it, sometimes it's the founder, sometimes it's the team, sometimes it's the market. You know, there's so many variables. Like you said, the stars all need to align, which is a harrowing thought when you're thinking in these kind of terms of of going really big. Do you ever actually reflect on the risk and like, do you ever get like anxiety or fear over like the size of the ambition of what you're going after? Or is it all sort of just taken in your stride?
0: No, I wouldn't say it's taken in my stride, but I I don't fear the ambition anymore that probably I would have done a few years ago because I have a really good sense for where where I think we're able to go and where we're able to take this. I know this business better than any other business that we've done. And so I feel a lot of inherent confidence. And when you have that, it takes you through a lot of, a lot of doubts that you would, you would typically have. But I think the other thing is that because we come from this background, as, as I know you do as well, of building businesses that are based on making money, you just don't ever lose that. However much money you might have in the bank account. That's not a license to break the business model and just spend money wildly. And if you do that, you're not going to come out of it again. You're going to be reliant on raising money in order for the business to survive. When you've been through making bootstrap businesses that are making money and VC-backed businesses that have failed, which I have, those two things together come and say, look, we've got great unit economics. We've got a good bank balance. Let's make some bets. But ultimately, we need to protect this being a path to a profitable business. If we don't do that, it's not going to work. That's actually a comfortable place to come back to when you start thinking really boldly, is that it's not to stop you feeling thinking boldly, but don't be ridiculous about it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I couldn't agree more. Okay, coming towards the end, not because I want to, but because you have a daughter to to pick up from school, so very fair excuse. I do, I do. Okay, what do you, like, speaking then of kids, like what do you think, um, you know, you would have given advice to yourself, like 20-year-old you going on this career? What advice would you give to yourself back then?
0: It's hard because I, I wouldn't change a lot. I didn't think about it a lot of the time, but so much of this is about who you meet and who you who you build your life with, I guess. And the co-founders that you work with, the people that you decide to build, go on these journeys with, that choice of who it is is, is more important than I think anyone realises when they're, when they're just starting out. But I wouldn't change a lot from that other than then, We've done some risky things that could have gone really badly wrong.
1: What, you mean like taking a stranger's black card from a pub after 30 minutes, yeah?
0: Exactly, all these things. God knows what could have happened in almost anything that we decided to just bowl into. But that naivety, I wouldn't lose. And I think it's easy to lose it. But no, I think you want to embrace that. And that's the whole reason for why being an entrepreneur is so exciting is that you've just got to go after it sometimes. And, uh, And it might go wrong, and who cares if it does? At least you tried. When it comes to picking co-founders, what is the most important thing to you? You need to be able to have fun with them and enjoy working with them. I think the obvious answer might be where you want to get people with complementary skills that fills a gap and all of those things. And that's true. But I think that's secondary, actually, to people that you could go into battle with. You can have passionate debate with and then go to the pub and have fun those are the relationships that lead to amazing things. Not, not the ones where it's like, you've got someone who's great at this, someone who's great at this, like those super groups never really work. It tends to be about the personalities and uh, how well you can support each other. You basically need to make really good friends and work with them. Yeah,
1: I completely agree. I often say the the key thing for me is trust and trust usually comes from friendships, to be honest, and is just built over time. Right. Last question. What is the best piece of advice you could give to listeners looking to start off on their own entrepreneurial journey, like in your footsteps?
0: Try and prove your idea before you go out and raise lots of money. And the money raising thing isn't the ambition. And you probably need less than you think to really make an impact. And I think it's getting harder to, to have that filter now that it's easier and easier to raise money and you can raise more and more amounts. But it's actually much more enjoyable to get it working and to be in control of it without all of the noise and then build from that platform it's a much more solid place to start from
1: completely agree tom it's been a massive pleasure thank you so much for joining us on secret leaders
0: thanks dan here at mindset win we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests we will hear stories strategies tips and tricks told by leading names in sport and beyond who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on
1: Secret Leaders. greatest asset that we have for having done this business so far quite well is our relative stupidity so not knowing anything about how the space works not knowing the decisions people usually take or are told to take enabled us to completely reinvent the entire process based on a framework of well how would you make the best product not how do people make this product So, very meta this, but that was me talking in next week's episode because we're back with the second chapter in the series where Will, our head of podcast, interviews me. Will tells me we're doing this because listeners actually want to get to know me better. Plus, it's a chance to find out what it's really like in the startup hot seat because I am building my other company heights in public. Will is going to ask things like what our goals are, and then in a few months, we're going to see if we've actually made them. If not, why not? That's next week on secret leaders. Thanks for listening. I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and I was the host of this episode. Editing was done by Lower Street Media with Will Stollerman, our head of podcast, Bring It All Together.